This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. interesting to me that you have the DNA avalanche, but then you also have the, uh, there's like a profound number of people being found dead in cars that are in water. Yeah. And the, and they're being found by divers, like you said, in water. This is, um, and I'm not psychic or anything. It's, (laughs) it's like literally just a logical conclusion. Yeah, that's just where they ended up. Uh, and so one of the more recent cases, this come, you can read about this in USA Today. It's from the YouTuber Jeremy Bow Sides. He creates videos where he's using sonar tech and he dives underwater to track down evidence um, in missing persons cases. He's sort of following along with something that you've always done. Because one of the things... When we're looking at missing persons cases to cover, one of the things that you always look at first is like, did they leave in a car and could it be in the water? Right. Uh, Anytime there is a vehicle that is missing with a person, uh, they are more than likely in that vehicle and they are more than likely something happened accidentally in the vehicle. Yeah. And it's a pretty low percentage of people who go missing with their vehicle and are actually the victim of some kind of serious crime. Right. Um, uh, but usually those vehicles ended up being found at some point. Right. So this is a decades old, two decade old case. Um, what happened here is uh, they're reopening an April 2000 cold case involving two missing Tennessee teenagers after a diver discovered a car belonging to one of the teens underwater. USA Today covered this on... December the 8th of 2021. But this is the case of Aaron Foster, 18, and Jeremy Bechtel, 17. They were last seen on April 3rd of 2000 after leaving Foster's home. On November 24th, the YouTuber I mentioned, Jeremy Boside, shot a video showing the discovery of a 1998 Pontiac Grand Dam uh, in the Calf Killer River in Tennessee that belonged to Aaron Foster. White County Sheriff Steve Page said that Foster's family contacted him about the video, and he reached out to Jeremy both sides. The car was found and later pulled from the Calf Killer River in Tennessee, which is about 90 miles east of Nashville. Police have now confirmed that the vehicle belonged to Foster. Investigators told WTVF, which is the, the one of the local stations, that human remains were found in the vehicle and they will be sent for testing. Both Foster's and Bechtel's families were notified. The details of how the car ended up in the river are still unknown, according to a uh, news release. But Side said in his YouTube video, I'm lost for words. I'm so glad I could find them. I'm so sad that that's where they ended up. I can't believe it's been over 20 years that they've been sitting there waiting for someone to find them. And while that's not confirmed yet, that is um, that is likely going to be the case, I think. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I have no doubt. I mean, just as 
much as I would say that somebody missing with their car has had a mishap that has caused the car to no longer be visible, such as water, um, I'd say it's even less likely that somebody else's body is in somebody's missing car. I mean, that's found Yeah, that would be later. weird. I hadn't thought about that. That would be really strange. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, chances are, yeah, it would be really weird. But, it, you know, it's a... I... It, now, I don't know why, but I'm sure you've noticed, and perhaps it's just because I said it out loud, but there's been a lot of cases recently with people being pulled out uh, or cars with remains in them being pulled out, uh, discovered and, and pulled out. And I don't know what it is that's making that happen. Um, I do. I've, what, I've started tracking it. Is it just people with hobbies? It sort of is. It, what it is is it, it, if you go back, there's like several early, I think Adventures with Purpose might have been one of the first ones that sort of organized it. Right. There's There's been the discovery that if you have the tools and the time to do some diving, uh, you can actually monetize that pretty easily on YouTube and get a pretty big following. Um, Adventures with Purpose is the group that I'm familiar with. They do this sort of on the side. Ultimately, it's the rise of these type groups. Uh, I don't want to say they're attention-seeking because they're doing something really interesting. These groups putting their more and more information out there. has, But these groups, ultimately, these groups have decided to get involved. They don't want to just be web sleuths. They want to be out there doing something, and this is how they're doing it. Right, and so uh, I haven't actually... I don't actually know like what the percentage of recent finds are. I know that there have been some just web sleuths like looking online and have, there's been a couple discoveries that way. Uh, they, like on Google maps, they've found, they've seen vehicles in water. Yes. And, uh, and then the adventures with purpose. And then it's more about like, I know uh, <laughs> what I do is, especially if there's enough detail involved in the circumstances surrounding someone's disappearance and they are in fact missing with their vehicle. Um, I actually just sort of plot out where I think it might be. And then, uh, because, you know, there's only so many places you're going to go into the water at, right? Right. And so, and then I sort of, sometimes I'll send it to you. Sometimes I just leave it, you know, where it is or whatever, because I'm not exactly sure how to approach that. <laughs> um, but I know that if it were, if I were facing a situation where somebody that I cared about was missing in their vehicle, I would certainly be swimming around where they could have gone in. <laughs> to find them. <laughs> I probably would be too. And this has come up recently. And we've even talked about cases that are sort of close to us personally, uh, not close to us. Like we know the people, but close to us, like geographically. And we're like, I wonder where the water is in that one. Um, but it is becoming like, if you Google missing people found in water or missing people found in cars, there are so many news articles from the last, I'd say year, year and a half. Where it's, this been, is, it's been a lot. Yeah. Like in an insane amount. In fact, I know that over the course of our show that on several occasions I've said, you know, that somebody missing with their car is in water. And it was almost like saying it out loud make, made it start appearing in the headlines. 
Yeah, people have started talking about it more. I think that's the thing. It used to be like I've been seeing those type notifications in news for decades, but it would usually be like a little note at the bottom that like a dive team training at some reservoir that, you know, once upon a time had a highway connected to it or near it, they found a body. Like I remember maybe 10 years ago in Colorado, uh, they either drained or were training in this one uh, place out in uh, Colorado where they found like six or seven uh, bodies all at one time. Like it was a lot of, it was a lot of cases closed off of that. Um, But yeah, it's become more and more prevalent and more newsworthy and people have been talking about it a lot more, but it closes out a lot of, interesting cases along the way. Now, some of them are really old. Like some of the cases are dozens and dozens of years old. Some of them are more, you know, last two or three decades. So I have to believe based on the pictures, um, which you can correct me if if I'm wrong. I believe that um, these would have been missing people that we had looked into. A lot of them, yeah. No, like this one in particular, Aaron Foster and Jeremy Bechtel. Now they were uh, they were missing on in April of two thousand. So if they might have come up in our keys thing, but they would have been crossed off pretty quick because he was out of the country then. Yeah, they could have come up in that. We may have mentioned like their uh, like a Namus or Charlie Project profile in passing because they just fell into the overall timeline. I know they, I know Jeremy Bechtel was on a list I had at one point, but I didn't, uh, I, I didn't have a, a heavy opinion. I, I actually want to say that maybe someone said they're in water or they're something. I don't know what it was, but there was something about them going, they went missing and it just kind of got, passed over. I, I mean, I hate it when that happens with cases, but there's so many of them. There's so many missing persons cases that end up sort of on my desk or my desktop, depending on how you want to look at it. And I do remember him and I remember seeing his, his like at least one or two photos of him. Uh, I want to say an age progressive photo sticks out in my head, but I don't know for sure that's what it was. But either way, uh, it appears they've been found. And that is closure for a family. So that's, that's always a huge deal to me when a, when a family can get closure out of these situations. And, um, I'm excited to see what people come up with next. Cause now with drones and, uh, submersible cameras, I think we'll see more and more of this happening, not just in water, but in strange places that people can get themselves into in cars. Yeah. I can't wait to see like how that expands because it's, Water's the natural progression. I know um, there was a situation where somebody had launched their vehicle out into the woods. Yeah. And they, they had died. And But other than that, I don't know of, like, right off the top of my head, I can't think of other weird places vehicles might end up. Well, I have a feeling we're going to find out. Probably. <laughs> so... Uh, this is continuing with our, our 12 cases of Christmas. Um, and this case that I've attached to what we're talking about here, this is a weird one, but it's not necessarily a uh, run-of-the-mill murder, which I don't know that murders are ever necessarily run-of-the-mill. Um, had you ever heard of Alexis Valdez? Yes, I had. 
How did he come up for you? Because I had also heard of him. Um, I think I saw him on the news and there was like a big, I was really confused because the way that the story plays out is it's, I say kid, but I'm pretty sure he was an adult, but uh, like a young man, he, he killed his aunt's boyfriend. Right. right? And so uh, we've talked about, you know, the headline skimmers and like, it almost sounds like it was on behalf of her, <laughs> but, yeah. and so that was always confusing uh, to me whenever the story came out because uh, the little tiny bet that was available, it didn't seem like that was the case at all. Like it, he did it just to do it. It wasn't on behalf of his band, but I don't know if you uh, picked up the same vibe or not. I, well, so I remember this case because the, Okay, I didn't know any of the facts of this case, so we started looking at it. But I remember this case happening because I remembered seeing the mugshot of Alexis Valdez in his little. He was in a uh, a Tyvek suit, like a clear Tyvek suit, and I had assumed that was because they had immediately taken his clothes for evidence. And as I started getting into the facts of this case, that that does appear to be what happened. So this is an attack from Christmas of 2013. And the gist of this is the victim in this case is a guy named Sylvester Diaz Hernandez. And like you said, he was the boyfriend of Alexis Valdez's aunt that he was living with. He, Alexis Valdez, who was 18 years old, had been told at the time this happened, 2013, he had been told to move out of the Northwest Side apartment that he was living in with his aunt by his aunt's boyfriend. He ends up pleading guilty to this, by the way. He had moved in with his aunt and with Sylvester Diaz Hernandez on the condition that he could continue to go to school, work, and that he would contribute to household expenses. He had stopped working, and Diaz Hernandez had asked him to move out. Uh, this ended up angering Valdez, and Valdez lashes out, attacking Diaz Hernandez with a hammer, and eventually decapitating and dismembering his body. He then, this is the killer, he decapitates, dismembers the body, and then he calls 911 to report that there's a dead body. So when the police show up, he's covered in blood. He admits to the killing. Uh, the po- and when police arrive on the scene. And so what we get after that is like news clips from Diaz Hernandez family members saying he was a good person. He never did anything to anyone. He was a good father. It sort of gets lost. But I will say this. He pleads guilty and he gets 33 years in prison. What do you think of that? I think that he snapped. Yeah. I mean, he didn't even make a, he didn't even, I mean, I guess maybe the dismembering was, um, it doesn't seem like it was, he was trying to conceal anything, but like, he didn't even really try to get away with it. He just was uh, really mad. And I think, so, you know, I believe this has come up. I don't know that it's come up with cases we've talked about, but maybe Um, when a Kid has a condition, and I say kid, he was 21, but he was still a kid. He was 18. 
He was 18. Yeah, yeah, 21 when he was sentenced, but he was 18 when he did it. Okay, 18. So, yeah, he was. I mean, either way, he's a kid. But when there's a condition of school, you know, like his living arrangements with his aunt and her boyfriend were contingent upon him being in school. Right. Okay. And he uh, wasn't in school, and he wasn't working, and he wasn't contributing to household expenses. Now, you can, you know, obviously people can do whatever they want. And I know tough love is a thing out there, but a kid that can't, that isn't going to school or working or contributing anything meaningful, like they've got problems that are not going to be solved with you kicking them out. And I feel like that, uh, I mean, I know this was his aunt and I don't know how he ended up like, you know, living with his aunt to begin with, but it seems to me like he, like he clearly needed more help. And this is just a very exaggerated example of what I'm talking about uh, because it made him so angry that he was going to lose a a place to live that he lashed out in a very violent way. I, and I'm not saying they should have allowed him to continue freeloading, but Uh, The very last thing that you want to hear when you're in a position where the world's just kind of falling in on you, because I don't feel like 18-year-olds are inherently lazy. Like, they just have stuff going against them. And unless you talk to them, they really, you don't know what's really happening, right? And so um, everybody needs a little bit of support. And I just, I I don't know, I feel like that might have been the wrong approach but, you know, clearly it didn't matter because he ended up killing him anyway. Yeah, they so they got pretty gruesome in the court case on this. And, it, I mean, I, I don't know how, how gruesome you, you could get. But what the prosecutor said was that because he was angry that they'd ask him to move out. He had been living there for only six months and that he killed the boyfriend to leave his aunt a Christmas Eve present in the form of the severed head of her boyfriend. In court, uh, Assistant State's Attorney uh, uh, Kingsley Sawyers, this is according to NBC Chicago 5 News on uh, December 26 of 2013. Sawyers said that Valdez moved in with his aunt and Diaz about six months ago. Valdez was allowed to move into the apartment to do what you were just talking about, go to school, work, and contribute to expenses. On Christmas Eve, while the aunt was out attending a party, Valdez started drinking. He became angry at being forced to move out. At some point, Diaz came home to the apartment and went with Valdez to the store so they could buy more beer. Because that's the best thing to do with anger is drink it away. Sawyer says that Valdez then hit a hammer behind the door and smashed Diaz in the head several times when they returned from the store. When Diaz was dead... He began to play loud music to conceal his actions as he dismembered the body, eventually cutting off Diaz's head. Valdez used a butcher knife to cut off Diaz's ears, nose, and mouth, and also pulled out Diaz's eyes with his bare hands. He cut off Diaz's arms and sliced the dead man's torso from his neck to his pelvis, then left the head, ears, and nose on Diaz's bed because he wanted to leave his aunt a Christmas present. Valdez eventually became exhausted from cutting up the body, and then he called 911 to report that there was a dead body, laughed, and told the 911 operator that the victim had been decapitated. 
This was in response to the 911 operator asking Valdez if he'd tried CPR. When, when police arrived, Valdez was covered in blood and had admitted to killing him. He was just angry with his aunt and with uh, Diaz Hernandez. Uh, he had no known criminal history, and he was held without bond until trial. Yep. So, uh, I, so if he was 18, um, you know, it's the aunt's boyfriend's bad for, you know, getting him additional alcohol after he was already drunk. Yeah. Um, you know, I know teenagers drink alcohol and, uh, you know, whatever. Usually they don't have this sort of result, but like there's actually some good reasoning behind kids not drinking. It actually affects their brain. That's not to say that he wouldn't have done the same thing, but I feel like a lot of things um, get exaggerated with alcohol. And I think it would be safe to say that um, his anger towards the situation was certainly exaggerated here. Um, it's just really odd that they would go to the store and get beer and then come back and he'd bash the guy's head in. That's a really, like, strange... That, that part of it makes it a little less snappy. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it's something that had been building up. But I did, I did want to uh, cover another weird case because this one goes by so quickly, there's not a whole lot to it. Um, do you ever read about English serial killers, like other than like Jack the Ripper and the obvious ones? Uh, sure. I mean, sometimes. I um I was while we were doing all of this stuff, and I was coming across different Hammer killings, which is where this originally. Um, that's where Alexis Valdez came up originally for me was the Hammer killings. When I was mm-hmm. there's a guy in England. He he actually died in 2020. His name is Anthony Hardy, and I realize not many people cover these type cases. But I was going to put him into this uh, episode because he's like a Jack the Ripper. He was known as the Camden Ripper. Okay, so this guy, he was actually active uh, in December of 2000 and then again uh, active until December of 2002. So he's sort of a Christmas time killer, but not as uh, obviously Christmas time as the rest of these people. Anthony John Hardy was born May 31st of 1951 in Burton-upon-Trent in Staffordshire. He had a pretty uneventful childhood. He earned an an engineer's degree from Imperial College of London. He became the manager of a large company there. He got married. He had three sons and a daughter. And in 1982, um, he was arrested in Tasmania. You want to guess what his first arrest was for? Uh, Something with a vehicle? No. No. Oh. This is first ever arrest. He oh, just arrested uh, for drunk and disorderly <laughs> conduct. No, for attempting to drown his wife. Oh my gosh! <laughs> his <laughs> wife Judith in 1982. He tried to drown her, but the charges were later dropped. Uh, but in 1986, his wife decided that she'd had enough and she divorced him. Wait, uh, what? She stayed married to him after he tried to For drown four him? years. For oh four years. Okay, well, uh, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. So after the divorce, uh, Hardy spent time in mental hospitals. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and he was treated with – he was treated in multiple – hospitals, not just for bipolar disorder, but also for depression, drug-induced psychosis, and alcohol abuse. Uh, He had started living in hostels around London, and he then picked up convictions for theft and drunken disorderly. 
Uh, he was arrested in 1998 when a prostitute accused him of raping her, but the charges were dropped due to a, a lack of evidence. The gist of that was he didn't necessarily rape her, but he had sex with her and didn't pay her. So they, the prosecution didn't didn't want to deal with that in court, which is also weird. It would be like failure to pay It'd for... It would be like theft. Failure to pay for services rendered, but prostitution is illegal, so that's why you get the money up front, I guess. I, I'm just... I don't know that much about it. I'm just saying, uh, like, I feel if that's if that's legitimately what happened, I don't blame the prosecutor for dropping it. I'm just telling you what happened. Uh, I'm telling you what I can, what I found about this guy. So at this point in time, he was believed to be an alcoholic and he was diabetic. Well, that's not a good combination. No, it's not a great combination at all. So in January of 2002, uh, this guy's been mainly off the radar since for about four years by the time this happens. Uh, and then it was like, yeah, it was substantially before then, right? Like 12 years before then, 12 or 14 years. Well, he had a few like little arrests between 1986 and 1998, but they weren't, they weren't serious. They were like, you Just know, petty things. Okay. They're pretty petty stuff. He, he had uh, convictions for theft and the drunken disorderly I mentioned, but in January of 2002, he decides to up his game and police are called to the block of flats where Hardy lived. Uh, to a neighbor complaining that someone had vandalized her front door and that she strongly suspected it was Hardy. When the police investigated Hardy's flat, they found a locked door, and despite his claims to the contrary, they found that Hardy had a, Hardy had a key to it. Uh, in the room, the police found a dead woman who was naked, lying on a bed with cuts and bruises to her head. She was identified as Sally White, who was 38 years old, who was a prostitute who had been living in London. Forensic pathologist Freddie Patel, though, subsequently concluded that White had died of a heart attack in spite of the circumstances. Patel later came under scrutiny for his findings and for other findings in his career. Uh, he's also linked to some pretty interesting conspiracies that resulted in a suspension from the government's register of pathologists pending an inquiry. And in 2012, his name was erased from the medical register by the General Medical Council. He was essentially undoctored meaning he could no longer practice medicine in the United Kingdom. Hardy ended up pleading guilty to the charge of criminal damage or vandalism of the door, claiming he had no knowledge of how White came to be in the flat due to his drinking problem. He claimed he was blacked out. So he ends up being in custody and transferred to a psychiatric hospital under uh, what's known as a Section 37. He remains there until November of 2002. And then in November of 2002, they just let him go. On December 30th of 2002, a homeless person scavenging in rubbish bins found the dismembered body parts of two women wrapped in black plastic bin liners, so trash bags. The women were identified as Bridget McLennan, 34, and Elizabeth Fallad, 29. And the investigation led to Hardy, who was arrested about a week later in January of 2003. He'd gone on the run, but he was spotted by an off-duty policeman when he went to University College Hospital to collect his prescription for insulin. So basically, this guy was going to pick up his meds, and they caught him. Uh, during a search of the grounds of the hospital after he'd been spotted, he was found hiding behind the dumpster. A fight took place as he resisted arrest, during the course of which a police officer was knocked unconscious, 
and another officer was stabbed through the hand and had his eye dislocated from its socket. Despite suffering these injuries, the wounded police officer held Hardy until backup arrived and he was arrested at the scene. A subsequent search of his flat found evidence including old bloodstains indicating the two women had been killed and dismembered there. Both had died over the Christmas holiday. Under arrest, Hardy simply replied no comment to every question put to him by the police. He was eventually charged with the murders of McLennan and Vallad and of White, whose death had originally put down to natural causes as a heart attack. At his trial in November of 2003, Hardy, despite his initial lack of cooperation with the police, with the police abruptly changed his plea to guilty to all three counts of murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Because of Hardy's history of psychiatric problems and violent behavior, an independent inquiry was announced into his care. He was diagnosed with an undisclosed personality disorder, and in May of 2010, a high court judge decided that Hardy should never be released from prison, putting him on the list of whole-life tariff prisoners, so people who are never going to get out. And Mr. Justice Keith, who was sitting in London, said, this is one of those exceptionally rare cases in which life should mean life. And then Hardy died in prison in 2020 so he died um november he basically died november 26 2020 in prison he was 69 years old (laughs) it's a crazy case i have to say that i agree with the judge (laughs) yeah don't let that guy out (laughs) well because i mean given his history like it's a good thing that he went in under the medical health act uh the Section 37. Yeah. Uh, the Mental Health Act. Like after um, the lady was found on a bed uh, in his flat, in his apartment. Because uh, he picked right back up where he left off as soon as he was released. Yeah. And so he's also linked potentially to other crimes when he's arrested. So it was originally reported that the police believe that he was possibly connected to two cases of unsolved prostitute murders, which is terrible, but they were found dismembered and dumped in the river Thames. They, they believed he might be connected to those. And they had five or six other murders that supposedly bore similarities to the ones for which he was convicted, but there was never enough evidence available directly implicating them. However, One of those murders that he was originally linked to, which was of uh, the London prostitute Paula Fields, whose body was dumped in the Thames in 2001, that ended up being solved in 2011 when another murderer, John Sweeney, was convicted of her murder. Although uh, I always get weird when I start looking at those convictions that were linked to somebody else that's similar. And then the other Thames prostitute murder was linked to Hardy uh, was that of Zoe Parker, who had last been seen at Hanslov in December of 2000 before her dismembered body was found in the in the river. And then there were two other murders linked to him that occurred in, in Nottinghamshire, so, it, you know, quite a ways away. I don't know for sure, like, if this guy is, like, a hardcore serial dude, um, but he, he's been linked in at least one documentary w- that I saw, which was a killer Killers Behind Bars, The Untold Story, uh, criminologist David Wilson, who pops up in his Wikipedia article and the three or four mainstream articles about Hardy, he was looking at claims whether or not he could be linked to Sharon uh, Hoare in Fulham in 1991 and Christine McGovern uh, in 1995. So this guy's an interesting one. He is a weirdo. 
Yeah, he is a weirdo. Um, I, I would have to look. You know, I, I find I don't think he's going to end up being responsible for the, uh, the river dumps. No, I don't think so either. I don't, I don't think he's responsible for much more. I mean, I, I'm always willing to be open minded in the case of guys like this that are pretty transient, and disorganized. That like maybe they do have other cases. I would need a lot of evidence to do that. Um, it, do you have any idea what, after he got out of the mental hospital, uh, after he was put there and they, and the homeless person had found the dismembered, uh, body parts of the women and it, it was linked back to him. Do you have any idea what that link was? Like what made them think of him? Cause I believe he said, uh, that, you know, they arrested him while he was going to go get his medicine. Yeah, he he had become uh, he had gotten a warrant. I was just curious what um like what was the tip off? I, I don't know that I don't know that anybody has ever said. I was just curious. I didn't know if somebody at, like said, well, he just got out of the mental hospital, and you know, he's this is what happened previously when they found the body on the bed in his apartment, and you know, they immediately thought maybe it was him. I don't know. I was just wondering. I'm skimming through his case history now. Look at what I've been able to find of it. It's so interesting because they just call them the bin bag murders, trash bag murders, whatever you want to call it. When I go to look at what they were talking about, it says that, no, the tip off from the public, they released a photo of Hardy after... Black trash bags near were found near his flat in Camden, North London, where he lived. He shaved off his beard. He had panicked. They released a photo of him. They don't say necessarily what the link is, but they, they pretty early say that they want to talk to him. He was 51 years old when that happened. You're thinking, like, what if he didn't do it type situation? No, uh, I have no doubt that he probably did do it. I'm just, I was just curious how they made the connection. Um, because it, it, okay. So it's 2002. That's really early for like DNA or whatever. I mean, I guess it's possible. Maybe it was like his trash bags. Like it had stuff in the trash bags that identified him his mail or something. Um, but I was just curious because that's how my brain is because whenever we were talking about it, it was just that he was linked to it. And I'm like, well, how'd they do that? And then just the fact that they called him the, the bin bag murderer or whatever. I mean, that kind of reinforces the fact that I don't think he did the Thames river uh, dump. Well, so here's what I have from the whole life order uh, from, this is from my hunting. And I'm just going to like, I, it's so weird. I figure I'm trying to put all the really disgusting stuff in this one case episode where it's like these things have happened, but but this is what it says. Uh, and I copied and pasted this whole thing. So if, if you want me to do something different, I can. This is from Sky News, and it's it's an article that's no longer online, but it's from May 14, 2010. A man dubbed the Camden Ripper after killing three prostitutes should never be released from prison. Anthony Harden was given three life sentences in November of 2013 for killing women to satisfy depraved and perverted needs. Almost 10 years on, the case returned to court. How is that possible? Yeah, 2003. Now it's 
seven years on, but whatever. Uh, the case returned to court following changes in the law on setting the minim- minimum period a lifer must serve before being considered for parole. Mr. Justice Keith, sitting in London, said, I've decided that Hardy should never be released from prison. This is one of those exceptionally rare cases in which men- life should mean life. The judge who presided over Hardy's trial then made a whole life order. He's now age 58. Hardy was released from a psychiatric hospital just weeks before he dismembered two of his victims. He left their body parts in bin bags near his home in Royal College Street, Camden, North London. Ex- experts believe that he strangled the women. Nine months earlier, officers had discovered the body of another woman in his flat, but her death had been put down to natural causes. Hardy pleaded guilty at his Old Bailey trial in November of 2003 to murdering the prostitutes. He had previously denied their murders, but changed his plea within minutes of appearing in dock. Giving him three life sentences at the time, Justice Keith told him, only you know for sure how your victims met their deaths, but the unspeakable indignities to which you subjected the bodies of your last two victims in order to satisfy your depraved and perverted needs are in no doubt. No minimum term tariff was set at the time as charges being, as changes being made to the law following a European court ruling meant that the Home Secretary could no longer decide them. Hardy's case joined a list of about 700 that had to go back for judge go back to court for judges, preferably the original trial judge, to set the tariff. Today, Mr. Justice Keith echoed the remarks he made when sentencing as he ruled that Hardy, who is currently in Broadmoor, must never be released. The judge said, the fact is, Hardy killed and killed again, his last two victims at a time, when he must have thought that he would get away with the murder of, when he thought he could get away with the murder of his first uh, these were truly horrific crimes made worse by the indignities to which he subjected their bodies of the last two victims after their deaths. A university graduate, Hardy had worked for a number of years before being made redundant in the 1980s, separating from his wife and four children in 1986. Thereafter, his life went into decline. There are periods during which he received psychiatric treatment for depression or depressive disorder as an inpatient at various psychiatric hospitals. By the time he killed the first of his three victims, he was an alcoholic living alone in a flat in Camden Town. Following Hardy's arrest, the police developed negatives from a film which Hardy had been had sent by post to a friend, telling them to keep them safe at all costs. The photograph showed the bodies of Miss Vallad and Miss McLanahan pictured naked after death in a variety of sexual positions. The faces of both women were concealed with a latex devil's mask and or a baseball cap. Psychiatric reports on Hardy revealed a personality disorder which constituted an abnormality of the mind. Well, I'm not a psychiatrist, and I could have told you that. (laughs) So having read that, are you pretty convinced that he's definitely tied to it? Or you, I yeah, mean, I know you weren't I, really I wasn't, otherwise. Yeah, I wasn't even not convinced to begin with. I was just curious how they made the leap so quickly. And I'm sort of go. I so I think the connection was probably some mail in the trash bags with the bodies, or near like in another trash bag. You probably took all the trash out at once. I'm just like that's the no. I I have no doubt that he did this. <laughs> um, yeah. I would be really surprised, uh, given like him trying to drown his wife initially, like so many years earlier. Like I'm being suspected of the rape of the prostitute. Yeah, he, he just it's kept going. It's a lot. Yeah. Well, so that is uh, another day of our Christmas cases for 2021. Uh, so. I don't, I don't often find like a place to put consumer interest stores, but it's Christmas time, and um, 
uh, through this really weird connection, um, I had met the subject of this next story, and I told his mom that I uh, <clears throat> that I would put his story on where I found the spot in the episode that was maybe shorter. So, so I'm going to play that story here. Jesse Stewart wrote Arlo's song for his beloved dog, Arlo. Jesse became famous after one of his music videos went viral on YouTube several years ago, capturing almost 14 million views. Jesse died last month while living on the streets here in Edmonton. For the last decade, his dog Arlo has been seen by his side. Well, now Arlo is missing. Michelle Stewart is Jesse's mom, and she's trying to find her son's longtime companion, and she joins us now to talk about this. Michelle, thank you for uh, talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Tell us about Jesse. What was your son like? Um, well, he was memorable, for sure. <laughs> he was pretty much the opposite of me. <laughs> He sought adventure. He didn't like to stay in one place for very long. He loved meeting new people and connecting with people. He was smart. He was funny. He was creative. <laughs> Sorry, this is just really hard. No, that's fine. I, I totally understand, and you take whatever time you need. Just uh, He was the kind of person I know that uh, I've been, I've been told that you know when someone would shout fire, he'd be running toward it, not away from it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Jesse always wanted to be in the middle of everything. <laughs> so yeah, he he definitely didn't shy away from things like that. <laughs> and, he, and even he was even in the local paper at one point. In grade school, he, I mean, he's always been a very busy person, so school was hard for him. He didn't like to sit still. But one of his teachers sort of recognized that he uh, was very intelligent and had him tested um, in grade five, and the test did show that he was actually quite gifted. He arranged for him to go up to the high school and do a computer science class with the grade 11s then. Wow. <laughs> Which was pretty exciting at the time. Yeah. When did music kind of come to the forefront for him? I would say it started when Jesse was about 12. My father started paying for private guitar lessons for him. He started with the bass and then went to the guitar. Picked up the mandolin um, around 17, 18, um, more when he kind of started going off on his own. That was definitely his instrument. (laughs) How surprised were you when songs started to go viral? We were very surprised. I mean, we were really happy for him. Um, It was exciting. We knew he was talented, but yeah, I mean, it was was a big surprise to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it garners attention, and I know Arlo started to get attention as well. How did he and Arlo come together? 
He had a good friend whose dog had puppies. So 10 years ago, he got Arlo as a puppy. Jesse passed away when he was 31. So he had Arlo from around the time he was 20, 21. At that time in his life, he was basically just traveling a lot, just seeking adventure, and Arlo just went everywhere with him. He hitchhiked across Canada, like, at least twice with Arlo. He used to, like, jumping on freight trains, and I did not agree with that. No, no. <laughs> um, and riding them around the country, and Arlo actually did that with him. They went everywhere. He had her when he was performing. She was often on stage. Yeah. She just, she lived the life of adventure with him. <laughs> and now Arlo is missing. Any idea where she could be? We believe that she is in Edmonton, where Jesse was when he passed away. Um, she may be being cared for by someone, or she could be at large. I kind of think she might be with someone. I would hope they would be aware that we're looking for her, but I just don't know. And Jesse had been just released from prison prior to this? Yeah, Jesse... Um, was struggling with a drug addiction at the end. Um, things were getting pretty bad, and he had a court date, and he was worried he might go to jail, so he did leave the dog in someone's care temporarily. He did end up going to jail for two weeks. We were trying to figure out how to get him home and Arlo, but he got released suddenly, um, sort of right after the floods happened, and uh, so we couldn't get him on a bus or anything. And uh, I lost touch with him. And then a week later, I found out that he had passed away. How important is it for you to find Arlo, Michelle? It's really, really important. Um, I mean, of course, she is a connection to Jesse, but it's more than that. Um, Arlo's 10 years old. You know, she's had quite a life, but she deserves a good home where she can live out her days and be comfortable. I work at a, a vet hospital. I have care all lined up for her to make sure that her health needs are taken care of. She's got me. She's got Jesse's grandparents, his nephew, his sister, his aunts and uncles, his cousins. We're all waiting here for her. What does Arlo look like? Can you describe her so so if people see the dog, they they might know it's her? Doberman Rottweiler Lab Husky Cross, I think. <laughs> uh, I might have missed some breeds in there. She's um, probably at least 70 pounds. She's mainly black, but she does have some tan markings on her face. Her muzzle is gray at this point. She has brown on her legs. She does have a tattoo in her right ear. The tattoo number is 69 VNC. It's traced to the vet hospital that I used to work at here in BC. Her snout is sort of longish like a Doberman's, right. but I would say she's a bit beefier than okay. that. Yeah. So if someone sees a dog kind of that meets that description, they think it might be Arlo, how, how could they reach you? Well, it is all over Facebook. There is an administrator um, on Jesse's music page on Facebook that would be happy to pass on any information. Um, I also have an email address, Michelle on the Island at gmail.com. And there is a reward as well, right? There is. 
is a $500 reward. We would not need any questions answered. We just really want her to come home safe. Michelle, I know this has been a, a tough few weeks, and uh, I, I do appreciate you taking a moment to just tell us about Arlo and a little bit about Jesse, and we certainly hope you're reunited soon with, uh, with his dog. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate your help. That was Michelle Stewart. Her son, Jesse Stewart, a well-known Canadian musician, died on the streets of Edmonton in November. She's trying to find her son's dog, Arlo. Now, if you have any information, you can email Michelle, her email address, michelleontheisland at gmail.com. You can also go to Jesse Stewart's Facebook page. There is a $500 reward being offered if you find Arlo. Here is Jesse Stewart with Time to Wander. Jesse Stewart, and a tune called Time to Wander. I know it isn't true crime, uh, but I, I do feel like some stories like this are important. And, you know, you meet so many people that, like, you don't realize the impact that they're having on other people. And Jesse, you know, you had to kind of see him and meet him to understand what I'm saying about that. Uh, but anyways, um, I did want to also point out that uh, Arlo was found and she is on her way home to uh, Arlo was found safe and she's now home with her family. 
Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.